Let's pray. Lord God, we come before You again this morning asking that You would speak to us through Your Word and the preaching of Your Word. That Your Spirit, He would be active. That He would impart life. That we would come to see and live in this world as those who truly know You and love You. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Well, here we are. Uh, we're at, at week four of this series as we look at uh, the Christian view of the state and government. And as I said throughout this series, these messages are meant to be viewed together. We've been building a, in at least in such a way that I think it makes sense. It may not make sense to you, but I, trust me, it made sense to me sitting in my office. But it's at about this point uh, this week where I start asking uh, myself, because we've got about four more weeks of it, why did I do this to myself? <laughs> Four more weeks of, of diving into what the Bible has to say about government. And despite um, my hesitation, the need remains, and I think we've made good progress. We have seen that our rights of the individual come from God, and uh, that God is God and the state is not. We've also saw that the state exists, Romans 13, to be God's servant to punish evil and protect the good. Last week, we saw the reality of sphere sovereignty in Matthew uh, chapter 22. That God, or Christ says, give to Caesar that which is his, give to God which is God's. And as I said last week, Caesar wouldn't agree with that division. Everything was Caesar's. So Christ is both affirming a right sphere of power for Caesar and also limiting that. There are things Caesar has no right to whatsoever, to claim from you. And all of this, that leads us to today's statement. The Sanhedrin tells the apostles to stop preaching about Christ in the book of Acts. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. A state is not God. A state is the servant of God. And because its sphere is limited, and because the state is populated by humans who are sinners, including us, all humans, sin, Civil disobedience enters the equation. It's unavoidable. Francis Schaeffer puts it well in his book, A Christian Manifesto. He says this, if there, is no, if there is no final place for civil disobedience, then the government has been made autonomous. That means a law unto itself, a power unto itself. And as such, it has been put in the place of the living God. The only thing you can't disobey is God. And that's the only thing you should never, the only thing you should never disobey is God. If you say you can never disobey the state, you are in fact making it your God. That's the point Schaefer is making. If there is a God who created everything and who has sovereignty over everything, then there is something higher than the state. There is something more important, more foundational, a greater authority than the state. And that is the basis of all righteous acts of civil disobedience. And we have to note that if you're reading your Bible well, that the biblical storyline moves often through acts of civil disobedience. The Hebrew midwives. David avoiding the pursuit of King Saul all across the countryside. The prophets challenging the kings. Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Christ in the temple. Do not think it was legal for him to just start throwing tables over the apostles traveling around the Roman Empire, and the saints in the book of Revelation. Those are just a few 
examples. Without civil disobedience, God's redemptive plan just stops. It's all over the pages of Scripture. After biblical times, we see this tradition of civil disobedience continued within the church and has blessed us in many different ways. Schaefer again, he says this, Thus, in almost every place where the Reformation flourished, we are one of those places, there was not only religious noncompliance, there was civil disobedience as well. Everywhere the Reformation went, people stopped complying with the Roman Catholic Church, which was often melded with the state, and started disobeying the state. Of course, we covered Romans 13. It's pretty clear. Submit to your governing officials. So how did the Protestant reformers miss that? Well, they never read the Bible in isolation. They never read the biblical text in isolation. You have to read the whole Bible. Understand everything that's going on. We, in our own history here today, are the recipients of the blessings of civil disobedience on so many different levels. Our founding fathers laid out a clear case in the Declaration of Independence of why they were compelled to disobey the king. And as you've st- if you've studied the Protestant tradition at all, uh, I remember sitting in my ethics class in seminary and saying, this is the Protestant tradition of civil disobedience. These are the requirements for it to be met. And I go, wow, that sounds an awful lot like what they did in the Declaration of Independence. They made their case according to the way Protestants were supposed to make their case, forever disobeying. You don't get taught that in school anymore, but it's, it's still there. And so we can endorse the righteousness and the benefits we've received from such acts of civil disobedience. We can also see and endorse the righteousness of other acts of civil disobedience in our history. The Underground Railroad that freed slaves from evil and unjust laws was civil disobedience. Who of us would dare speak against that? We can praise the civil rights movement and its peaceful disobedience and recognize the positive impact that had. We don't sit here as a desegregated church without civil disobedience. You can see the Bibles that you're holding in your own hands right now, in your own language, and if you know your church history at all, that men and women were burned at the stake by the state because they disobeyed and they translated it into the common tongue. That's just a small sample size. So when we talk about civil disobedience, and if your Christian leaders or pastors will only ever talk about Romans 13, they're full of it. And the it isn't scripture. It's all over the pages of the Bible, and it's all throughout the bloody pages of church history. And yet, we have to admit that this is a hard topic to talk about because the lines are not always clear. It's not always clear where we should disobey and where we shouldn't. And so we need to think and talk about these things carefully. For saying that civil disobedience is allowed sometimes does not give us free reign to do whatever we want according to our own standards. To disobey the state simply because we don't like something or we simply disagree with it is sinful. We can't just get rid of Romans 13 because we don't like it. Submission means submitting even if we don't like the thing we're submitting to sometimes. That's indeed what submission is. And the truth is, We are always submitting to something. I want to repeat that to you today because we're lied sometimes thinking that freedom means there's no authority in life at all. You are always submitting to something. There's always some highest standard you are bending the knee to. And as Christians, we want to make sure we're bending the knee to the right authority. And so I hope today that I can offer you some clarity from Scripture 
on civil disobedience when it is allowed, when it is forbidden, when it is required, and when it is an issue of personal conscience. There's a lot of data in Scripture, and so I'm only going to pick a few examples. So we begin with this truth. Christians are to have a disposition of obedience towards the state. Romans 13 commands it, and we are to joyfully submit to it because government is instituted for our good. Romans 13. And we must remember that we as individuals are not a law unto ourselves. Okay, you cannot replace the common thinking today that the government is a law unto itself with you saying, well, I'm going to become a law unto myself. God hates both of those, so we're going to avoid doing that. The Protestant tradition has outlined for us the process of civil disobedience. How we should do this, and they've done this by wrestling with what Scripture says in totality on the subject. So let me give you a brief overview here. The first thing we should do in response to unjust laws is to protest them and to seek legal or legal recourse. And we do so peacefully using the set-up means within that government. In other words, our, our courts are there for a reason. I admit to you that the courts are often slow in correcting wrongs, but they are there for a reason, and they have, now again and again, now catching up two years later, saying, oh yeah, those governing officials were wrong, they couldn't do that. But that's what we're supposed to do. There are checks and balances in our government uh, for a reason. And when a court vindicates people who are practicing civil disobedience, like John MacArthur in his church in California, what they are saying is, is those people didn't have any right or authority to do that. You were right to disobey. And we should be thankful that such men still exist today. And so, this also includes the idea that in our form of government, seeking new representative leadership and seeking to change and influence the writing of laws. The idea of campaigning and lobbying to change the status quo. Again, in this last year, we saw one of the greatest legal overturns in recent memory. Roe v. Wade was overturned through the diligent efforts of Christians for years and years who were told for years, even as recently as two years ago, it's never going to happen. And there it was. It happened. Is everything done? No, we still got a lot of work to do. But these are what we should be doing as Christians. Second, the Protestant, uh, our Protestant forefathers told us, we should seek deliverance from lower officials. This is often referred to as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. In other words, there are lots of governing officials out there. And the job of every governing official at every level is to protect his flock. It's to protect those under his charge. So a lower governing official, if a higher governing official is abusing your people, and if you were to ever find yourself as such a governing official, it is your duty to protect your people and to use your power against those higher than yourself. A mayor, in other words, should protect his citizens from bad state laws. A governor should protect his citizens from bad federal laws. There's a reason why our governing officials swear to protect, uphold, and defend the Constitution from all threats and enemies, foreign and domestic. Because it is the job at every level of every governing official to do his job well and righteously. Governors, mayors, representatives. And we see this again in our founding. There's a reason why our founding fathers started the Continental Congress. 
Right? They didn't just start rioting in the streets. They didn't just start doing whatever they wanted. There had to be some governing authority to protect its people from the abuses of the king and parliament in Great Britain. Next, the Protestant tradition says, we are instructed to flee if possible. Flee if possible. If the situation is dire and no redress can be found, you are instructed to flee the jurisdiction of the oppressor. Again, that is largely how this country came into being. Many of our forefathers were Protestants who were being oppressed by the state who set across the ocean to find freedom. They fled. They fled oppressive governments. Finally, and only as a matter of last resort, the Protestant uh, tradition affirms that force can be used to institute change. We should note here that this force is, must be done not through anarchy, not through breaking into people's homes, not through political assassinations, but set up under some other governing authority. Because there's always going to be a government under the lesser magistrates, as it were. This was the job of the Continental Congress. This is why the representatives of each colony had to vote to join the Revolutionary War. Because it was something very, very different than the French Revolution. They were trying to operate according to biblical standards. And this was done, oh, and the, our Protestant forefathers remind us, this must be done with some chance of success. That one always makes me a little easy or uneasy because I'm like, who defines that there's a chance of success? But what they're getting at here is you can't just declare the ten of you that you're going to start your own country and you're going to take down the entire uh, United States of America or Russia or wherever you are. That's absurd. It's not going to work. Don't do that. And, but we should note and be very grateful for what is about to happen here in our country is that our country is based upon the peaceful transfer of power. In other words, our founders were very astute to put into our regular governing every two to four years that we can have nonviolent revolutions. Nonviolent revolutions are always to be preferred over violent revolutions. And so we should understand that and take full advantage of that every two to four years. And now, we also note that these things are all qualified, that none of this is to be enacted based upon one offense of a government. None of this is to be enacted um, if it's something that is a light or transient cause. But instead, there needs to be a long train of abuses. The issues, in other words, must be of great importance. So I'm going to give you a silly example, recognizing that I know it's a silly example. But I'm very convinced with the biblical understanding of government, that seatbelt laws are a government overstep. It is not inherently sinful for me to, to uh, not wear a seatbelt. The government has no compelling interest to tell me to wear a seatbelt. But guess what? On your way home from church, you should wear a seatbelt. It's the wise and prudent thing to do. But that overstep is not significant and does not rise to the level of me wanting a revolution. There are different weights of issues, and we need to understand that. And this is, in a nutshell, what the Protestant tradition has said about civil disobedience. And I believe it to be firmly rooted upon the biblical text. And we are largely the benefactors of that tradition. And so now, that's the process our forefathers have laid out for us. And when I say forefathers there, I mean our Protestant forefathers, not our country's forefathers. 
But, I, but this is uh, not an age of careful thinking. Right? Careful thinking can't be summarized in 240 characters or less. Careful thinking doesn't get us hot takes and likes and shares and retweets. But we have seen that the how of civil disobedience are the steps, but we haven't asked the when question. When? When is it allowed, Pastor Levi? Uh, in a recent article at ChristOverall.com, uh, Bradley Green was wrestling with Francis Schaeffer's A Christian Manifesto on this, where he offers a much fuller definition of, of all of this. But he wrote, a, he wrote about the need for us to flesh this out more as Protestants. When? When is it allowed? When is it not allowed? And, and I wholeheartedly agree with his article on that, that we need to do more thinking on this and more writing and more arguing uh, than we have because the biblical text is absolutely chock full of examples of when civil disobedience should happen. And so I'm going to try here in the time that remains to give you my formulation of it. I think I fall within the Protestant tradition here, and I'm taking this from the text. I hopefully we'll see here, but I'm going to try to give you the when. When does it rise to civil disobedience? And we start with this where we started before. Uh, to disobey a righteous law or to disobey the state wrongly is to sin against God. Right, that's Paul's point in, in Romans 13. The state has legitimate authority given by God. And when used rightly in the proper scope and sphere, if you choose to disobey it, the warning of Paul is that you are actually invoking the wrath of God upon yourself. So this is no small thing. Right? Sin is a big deal. As Christians, we don't want to be sinners. We don't want to be lawless rebels. We cannot ever act that way. God instituted the state as his servant, and if we reject the servant, we reject the master. And even a prideful rebellion against an unjust law can be rooted in sinful attitudes and hearts. We see that all the time. We want to avoid that. This comes back to the statement I made a couple weeks ago. Not all crimes are sins, and not all sins are crimes. When Daniel disobeyed Darius, it was illegal, but it was not sinful. When you lie about what you had for lunch, it is sinful, but it is not a crime you should be thrown in jail for. There's a difference. And I say this here because sometimes, we hear it repeated endlessly, uh, we can't legislate morality. Brothers and sisters, that is utterly false. It's simply not true. Of course, laws cannot change people's hearts. That is 100% true. Laws cannot change people's hearts, nor should they seek to do so. This is why you can't legislate things like thought crimes or speech crimes. But every law, every single one, is tied to some morality or some moral statement. They are all in attempts to enforce morality. The only question is, is which morality is being enforced and which one isn't. Of course, a movement that has claimed to be against legislating morality, the sexual revolution, has become hypocritically obsessed with doing the very thing they were supposedly against just five, ten years ago. You either fall in line or you're done. Why? Because, again, it's impossible for laws not to be about morality. They always, always, always are. That leads us to our, our second Category. First category, righteous laws you must obey. If you do not, you are sinning against God. Second category, 
Just as it is a sin against God to disobey a righteous law, it is a sin against God to obey a law that in obeying it, you would be committing a sin. In obeying it, you would be doing something that is evil. You cannot excuse doing sinful things by saying, I'm just obeying the law, or I'm just obeying the king, or I'm just obeying the president, or whatever. Why? Because if you are faced with a choice between obeying God or men, you aren't charged with obeying God every single time. This is exactly the point Peter makes in Acts chapter 5. Jesus commanded them to preach the gospel. The Sanhedrin commanded them to not preach the gospel. Who are we going to obey? Well, we are going to obey God and not man. Now, I want to be clear here. On that general principle, there really is little disagreement among Christians. If you're commanded to murder, you have to disobey. The Bible is exceedingly clear on this. Now, there's much more murky water on when is it actually being, are you actually being commanded to sin or not. And that's something we have to argue and reason and, and think through. But any law that requires sin in its obedience must be disobeyed by Christians. And some, though, I had this happen to me last time I preached on on the topic of civil disobedience at my, my former church. I got a lot of emails last time. <laughs> a lot of them very positive. A lot of them unhinged and unreasonable. A lot of Christians will claim that that only applies within what can be directly or obviously religious things. Now to be clear, if you know me, if you've been around for a while, you know that I do not buy into a stark division between religious and non-religious realms of life. It's not found in the Bible. It's, it's really a modern invention of the last hundred years of thought. Uh, before that, I mean, the Sanhedrin claimed authority over some things we would call religious and some things we wouldn't call religious. Caesar did the same thing. Why? Because they didn't think in those categories. It's something we think in that they never did. So the Sanhedrin claimed authority over religious and political life in Israel, and Peter still disobeyed. And for this reason, it is good to consider some examples. First, as I have mentioned, the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1. Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to kill all male children when they are born. I know what you're thinking. How could they possibly know it was male children? Simpler times. It took a while, but you, got, you guys got it. The Hebrew midwives not only directly disobey this command, but they even lie to Pharaoh about it. Like you want to make your, your evangelical heart a little nervous, you would focus on this fact that they lie to Pharaoh and say the Hebrew women, they're just so good at giving birth, they just pop right out. And Pharaoh believes it's showing how ignorant he is of such things. And so, they lie, they disobey, and Exodus 1 goes out of its way to say that God blesses them. God blesses them. Why? Because to obey Pharaoh there would be to disobey God. It remains wrong to murder even when the king commands it. And murder is not a strictly religious area of life as far as I can tell. Consider also another example in Daniel chapter 6. A law is, is suggested by all the satraps, our presidents, that is all the lower rulers underneath Darius, that that prayer should be banned. For 30 days, it should be banned. 30 days to flatten the curve. 
But here we should pause. How many Christians, and I can think of times in my own life where this is true about me, how many Christians in their spiritual laziness have gone 30 days without praying? How many churches went longer than 30 days without publicly praying and worshiping and communing together over COVID? It's only 30 days, guys. It's only 30 days. I mean, Daniel could have prayed privately, only in his mind. No one would have known. He could have avoided poking the bear. But listen very carefully to what Daniel does here. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, it's been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and prayed three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. He found an open window. <laughs> he sat right in front of it. Didn't pray once. Prayed three times a day and said, come get me. May his tribe increase. And God delivers and vindicates Daniel. And that, that brothers and sisters, I say this with no joy in my heart, that 30 day ban on prayer puts the American church to open shame. 30 days, guys. It's only 30 days. The examples from Scripture could be multiplied, but whenever a governing authority commands evil, like not praying to God, you, brother and sister in Christ, are duty-bound before God to disobey. You have no choice. If you choose opposite, you're sinning. You must obey God over men. This is what makes Christianity such a thorn in the side of tyrants throughout world history and why they always want to snuff it out. Because we don't give ultimate allegiance to the state. So, when, so let's recap so far, because largely that shouldn't be that controversial. If it is, well, we've got other issues. If a law is righteous, you are bound before God to obey it. If a law commands sin, you are bound before God to disobey it. But here's the, the reality. Life's not often that cut and dry. What about the space between the two? What about when the government commands something that is outside of its rightful sphere, but it's not necessarily a sin to obey it? Things can be totally indifferent, or they can even be meant to promote evil. But obedience itself, at least formal obedience to the law, is not sinful. What are you and I to do then? That's what I think Bradley Green was getting at. Where, how do we flesh that out? This would include things like mask mandates. Wearing a mask is not inherently sinful. You don't get sent to hell for wearing a mask or not, contrary to what MSNBC might think or, or propagate. But it is my belief that it is beyond the government's proper scope and authority. Moreover, within our governing structures, many of these things were implemented on dubious grounds that flew in the face of established law and precedent. I'm not going to dive too deep into that. We'll talk about that in the coming message. But that adds a whole other layer of calculus to how do we figure this out? How do we reason together? But So this third area is very large. It's a very large area with lots of different examples. So let me give you a couple extremes, as it were. In the Jim Crow South, it was not sinful for an African-American, if they were walking by a restaurant that said no blacks allowed, 
he was not duty-bound to walk in there and disobey that law. The white American was duty-bound to disobey that law, but the black American was not. He could keep walking down that street and not be sinning before God. But that issue is a very, very serious issue. And so because of the seriousness or the moral weight of that issue, contrary to something like a seatbelt law, the Christian should probably feel more inclined to disobey such a gray area than something else. This category, as I said, is very large and diverse. But here's the conclusion I have become convinced of, and I think it is rooted in the text. When obeying a law does not equal me sinning, but is an overreach of authority, you are free to either obey it or disobey it before God. So one, you are not free before God to disobey it. One, you are not free to, before God to obey it. In this category, you are free to use your conscience and your biblical wisdom to arrive at how you should act. And the weight of the moral issue at hand, the opportunity before you, and the context should determine what you should do. Basically, this is based on the fact of Romans 13 and Matthew 22. God has appointed the state as a servant with a limited sphere of authority. He no more can claim authority outside of that than I can claim authority outside of the authority God has given me as a pastor. Again, last time I preached on this at my other church, I gave this example. If you've heard it before, just bear with me. But if I, your pastor, were to see you shopping at Walmart, and I were to walk up to you and see that you were buying a pair of jeans, and I grabbed them and I said, hey, these aren't Levi's jeans. Right? You can't buy these. I'm your pastor. The Bible says, submit to your pastor. Do it. You would probably laugh, realizing I'm telling a joke. At least I hope you would realize I'm telling a joke. But God has not given me that authority as your pastor. Much to my chagrin. Now, you can buy those jeans or not. It's morally indifferent. But let me make this point clear. If I were seriously making that claim, me making that claim is not morally indifferent. That's an abuse of my power. I don't have that authority. God has not given it to me. The Bible gives an example of this, and I think it is it's really striking in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27. It says this, When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is a striking passage for a lot of different reasons. First, last week we were just five chapters later in Matthew 22 and where Jesus commands us to pay taxes to Caesar. Here he's doing the opposite and I think uh, that there's a reason why they asked him in Matthew 22 about this because of what he says here in, in Matthew 17. He says, you're free not to pay the temple tax. Now that tax was implemented by God in Exodus chapter 30. And here Jesus shows that because the new covenant has changed the need of the temple, 
and has changed the status of the people in the covenant, that they are now sons in Christ, that law, even though Israel was still enforcing it, was not binding. And so Jesus affirms that they are free to not obey it, but then he miraculously provides the money and they obey it anyways to not cause offense. They are free to either pay the tax or not pay the tax. It wasn't sinful for them in either direction. And so I think I can safely deduce that there are times when we are not bound to submit or bound to disobey, but we have to make that judgment call. Is this worth making the offense over or not? There were times during COVID where I chose obstinately to not wear a mask, and there were other times I chose to wear it. It was largely the context. If I was visiting someone who was sensitive, or if I needed to wear it to visit them, I put it on, and I put it on happily because I wanted, there was something more important going on. And so we must weigh the issue in circumstances, in the context. Is this worth fighting over? Segregation, yes, is worth fighting over. Seatbelt laws is probably not worth you gathering at the Capitol to protest over. But if I were governor and the law came before me, I'd void it right out. So here Christians can disagree. But we should note that the besetting sin of evangelicalism is to say this, none of these hills are worth fighting on. That's what we're bent towards. The besetting sin of evangelicalism is to say, none of these hills are worth fighting on unless it's some obscure theological thing that the pastors can get all worked up about. I had a friend text me this week asking me about whether or not I'm following this conflict within Reformed over whether or not Reformed Christians should be appealing to Thomas Aquinas or not about classical theism or not. And if none of that is any interest to you, good, it shouldn't. I said... I, like, I know that these issues are somewhat important, but I just don't care. So I don't care. The barbarians are in the gates, and you want to distract me with this. I, I just I don't care. There are more important things to fight over. If you guys want to fight over that, great. I don't have the time nor the inclination. Now again, the objection may come to this. Jesus' example in Matthew 17. Well, that's just a religious thing, Levi. That's not state. Again, such divisions are arbitrary, but let me give you one that's not so clearly religious. 2 Kings chapter 1 verses 9 through 16. The king sends a group of soldiers to Elijah and instruct these group of soldiers on behalf of the king say the king says Elijah come down from this hill. I can't think of anything more indifferent than coming down from a hill. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men and with his 50 he went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of the hill and said to him O man of God the king says come down. Clear command, clear authority. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. God vindicates Elijah. Now, the king sends another group of 50, and the same thing happens. They say, king says, come down from this hill. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and they all die. Then a third group comes. And this king, not being an idiot, or not this king, sorry, the king was an idiot, this general, not being an idiot, says, Elijah, please don't kill us. <laughs> Will you please just come down from the hill? And Elijah comes down from the hill. It wasn't sinful for him to stay at the hill and disobey the king. It wasn't sinful for him to come down from the hill. And so we have this third category. 
where the law is beyond the scope of God-given authority, but doesn't command a sin, brothers and sisters, you are free, as Christ would say, before God to weigh the costs and to make a prudent decision. We are free to either obey the command or disobey the command before God. And you should note, though, that if you do choose civil disobedience in that realm, you should be willing to pay the civil cost for it. That is a part of the calculus. So the moral weight of the issue and the surrounding context should inform how you act in that moment. And we should act with wisdom and shrewdness. As Christ says, we need to be as innocent as doves and as shrewd as serpents. And so here we are. Let me summarize. We must obey righteous laws. You must disobey unrighteous laws. And you are free before God to choose when and the in-between. God instituted government to hand out his wrath on earth for the breaking of his moral law. When the government does the opposite, and when it becomes destructive to those ends, everything changes. So I must repeat this to you. You are always, always, always submitting to something. For Christians, that is never a call for you to follow your your own heart, follow your favorite uh, podcaster, It is never a call towards a self-centered view of government that leads to anarchy. It is never a call to making yourself the ultimate standard. If you only submit to yourself, then you are no different than the unbelieving atheistic leftist who turns the state into God. You've just got a different false God. So we are always submitting to something or someone, and for Christians, that is always to be God himself. We obey the state, Romans 13 says, because we're ultimately obeying God. We disobey the state, as Peter tells us in Acts 5, because ultimately we are obeying God. You are always to be submitting to God in what you do. Bad government does not make us a lawless people, for we are called to obey God and his law no matter what. And we are called to that faithful obedience to Christ and to his universal lordship. Obey Christ, and then, and only then, can you and I be free. That's the message of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word, uh, you do not sugarcoat anything. You show us the boundaries and you show us how complicated life can often get. Lord, may we be men and women who joyfully obey you. That even in our obedience to other men and other institutions, ultimately that is motivated by an obedience to you. And Lord, where the government or any other authority, whether it be the home or the church, oversteps those bounds, may we follow you despite the cost. May we always be found in obedience and faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.